Our text this morning will be 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And this is God's word for us here this morning. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray together. Father, we bow. And as your people, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you, to your word, and to your will. We are very grateful, God, for the songs we got to sing. It's a joy to sing a new psalm. Um, it's a joy to declare the truth of what you've built us together as a church, as a family. But now, Lord, we need you to, to shape us in our lives by your word so that we might become the people that reflect to the world exactly what you want your people to be. Let us, let us be changed this day that we might better please you and honor you and know you. Give us mercies. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. We've said from the beginning of our study of 1 Peter that the churches who received Peter's letter were living in a hard time with harder times still to come. Peter calls them exiles, outcasts, scattered among the cities of Asia Minor. These people didn't fit in with their society, and they could be sure that from time to time the society around them was going to try to change them, to mock them, to hurt them. And living as a Christian there would not have been easy, and it was going to get harder. Today in our text, we're reaching the end of a section of this book. We'll be sort of turning to a new thought uh, in the coming weeks. But Peter's sort of wrapping up the section where he is told the Christians in Asia Minor, conduct yourselves well while you live in this world. He called them to submit to those in authority over them. Citizens, submit to the government. Slaves, submit to masters. Wives, graciously submit even to lost husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. No, never submit in such a way as that would make you violate the word of God. But in a sense, Peter's telling the church, don't make waves in society by refusing to follow the lines of authority that are over you. Peter's telling the church, love God, love each other, and be good citizens. There's a little bit in here that would almost make you say, keep your head down and do, the, do your job that you've been given in society. And I think we all know that even that is easier said than done, right? I mean, it's easy to say we're supposed to submit to the authorities over us. 
And we all willingly submit to the authorities that we are under, right? Well, I mean, we submit to them so long as we like what the one in authority over us tells us to do. By the way, can that be called submission? If I only submit when I like it? But if we're persecuted or if we're instructed to obey a command we don't like or God forbid we think we're smarter than the person who's over us, that's when it gets really tough, doesn't it? And just like the first century church, here we are as Christians living in a world that's not our home. We're living in a society that really wants to tolerate us less and less. We're living under a government that has already moved to make it harder and harder for us to simply stand on the Word of God in public living. And God's Word through Peter to the first century church rings out to us as the call of God on our lives in the 21st century. Well, this morning, Peter's going to give us a few final thoughts on this whole section about relationships of authority and submission and society. And he's going to counsel us on the kinds of hearts that we should have toward each other and the kind of attitude we should have with the lost around us. We're going to look at five verses, and we will find, Lord willing, five points that help us honor God and help us practice gracious living, which is a hard task in a harsh world. So if you're ready, we'll get started with point number one. Develop a godly heart. Develop a godly heart. Look at verse 8 with me. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The word finally tells us that Peter is wrapping up his thoughts in this section. I mean, we've got two and a half chapters of this letter to go. So he's not wrapping up the book unless he's like a modern preacher who says finally and then goes on for another 20 minutes. But, but Peter is here giving us some tools that we need if we're going to live in the hard society that God's placed us in. And Peter gives us here five key traits, five key attributes that need to mark our lives. And I summarize them with the word a godly heart. But you might, after we're done, have a better word to help you think about what these five things should be in your own life. And we're best served to think of verse 8, I would say, as particularly focusing on how you and I live together in the church. This is about us together. This is how you live in connection to the people of God. The attitudes and the attributes that you're supposed to put on in verse 8, the way the Bible tells us to treat each other in the family of God, that's what this is. But we're going to find that verses 9 through 12 are probably connecting us to how we live toward the world around us. And we can't draw an absolute line of distinction here between how we treat each other in verse 8 and how we live in the world in verses 9 through 12. But for this part, let's accept this. God wants these attributes to mark your life, these five things in this verse. He wants these to mark your life. And I would say it is especially true in the church. In fact, some of these you can only have in the church. But they are going to overflow in how you walk from day to day in every arena of your life. So let's take a look at these five words. The first thing that you are supposed to put on in order to have a godly heart is unity of mind. 
as a church, we are to be a single-minded people. And that parallels very well what Paul said to us in Philippians chapter 2 about being like-minded, though Paul uses a very different word to say the same thing. Something about a Christian living in a local church should be eager to be unified in mind with other Christians. We should be eager to have unity, to agree, to think the same way about things that matter. Well, how do we do that? You know, there's really only one answer to that question, but the foolish world out there would offer you two. See, the world would say to you, that you become of one mind by simply ignoring your differences in things like theology. There are plenty of modern churches out there that would tell us, stop thinking about controversial doctrine. And, and the moment that you get rid of all of the truth, except for Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, then boom, you have unity. But guys, do you realize already that won't work? How many of you in Sunday school realized that won't work? <laughs> we talked about this already. I had no idea those were going to flow like this, but they do. God's word never leaves us able to let go of all doctrine just so we can accept the bare minimum and call it unity. God's word gives us, what did we say this morning? Guardrails to stay between so that we can have unity between those. No, no the way to be of one mind, how do you be a people of one mind? You be a people wholly submitted to the Word of God. The more you and I look at the Word of God and love the Word of God and faithfully try to understand the Word of God, the more we will be of one mind. We're going to be of one mind because we will develop, as Paul says in Philippians 2.5, the mind of Christ. We'll know our God based on his perfect revelation of himself in his word. We will know what God wants based on his commands in his word. We will be united, not because we're all exactly the same, because if you notice that we're not exactly the same, but we'll be united because we're all working from the same instructions. You know, like a symphony of all different instruments ends up playing the same song, how do they do that? Well, they play out of the same music, don't they? Or a football team all ends up running a unified play. How? They're working off the same playbook. Unity comes as you and I submit to the word, not as we ignore it. So ask yourself, even as you think this through later, how can I develop the attribute of unity? single-mindedness in the body of Christ. But next in this verse is sympathy. And that has to do with emotion. Now, right now, I want to stop a couple of you. So if you stop, if you just checked out, look back up at me. There's a couple of you who, kind of like me, try to avoid all the feely stuff. How many of you are sitting next to somebody who you know tries to avoid the feely stuff? Nudge them, it's okay. This command to put on sympathy is a command of God that you develop sympathy. So don't switch off your overly logical brain because you don't feel this way. 
God commands you and me to learn to share in the feelings, in the emotions, in the joys, in the pains, in the highs, in the lows, in the laughter, in the sorrows of others in the body. Well, how do you do that? I would suggest that the third word, brotherly love, helps. It's the, it's the Greek word philadelphos. It's the word for brotherly love. And Christians, if you and I are to live as God commands, we have to strive to work to love each other as family. If you're a member of this church, you have already committed that you will love other people in this church. If you're a Christian, God has commanded you to develop a familial, a brotherly love for other children of God. And that means you value the people of God. And that means you strive to do them good. And that means you sacrifice for the good of other people in the body. And part of having sympathy and having brotherly love is to have a tender heart. The Greek here is a word that means a good heart. Well, actually it means good innards. In general, good guts, bowels actually could go in. It's the part of you that feels. And it says to have the part of you that feels affection toward others, have that be tender toward them. And if you tie that to the last, as a a group of three, y'all, there's just no way at all we can be what we're supposed to be if we are head-only Christians. Our hearts are to develop tender affection, brotherly love, sympathetic feeling for each other. And you know what? For some of you, that'll come really naturally. And for some of you, that's going to require prayer and intentional action so that you develop feeling for others in the body, especially for others in the body who are very different from you. And then Peter finishes the five things off here with a humble mind. And that's literally good-minded the way that tender-hearted was good-hearted. In our minds, we're not supposed to think too highly of ourselves. In our minds, we're supposed to value others and their needs even over our own. Again, just like Paul gives us in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Now, a little side note here for you who like this stuff. If you look at those five attributes they may very well be arranged in what we would call a chiasm or a chiastic structure. The Greek letter chi or ki, if you want to pronounce it that way, is like our letter X. And the idea of a chiastic structure is when you see something in the Bible go A, B, C, B, A, or 1, 2, 3, 2, 1, where there's parallels from the end to the middle. So think about this. Being of one mind on the one end, is really tightly connected to being humble-minded at the other, right? You can't think of yourself as central and high. You, you, you have humility that helps you to be unity of mind. But then look at the second words, sympathy, and then the second to last word, tender-hearted. Very similar words, very similar concepts. So then what stands alone in the center of all of this, which means it's probably the most emphasized piece, brotherly love. You and I are to develop in our lives brotherly love. Affectionate, caring, kind, gentle, 
tender, humble, unified hearts. I called that a godly heart. If you've got a better word to describe it, write it down. Because I really struggled with the right word, and I still don't think I like it exactly. But it's what we're supposed to be. Why would he write this? See, Peter knows that these churches are facing hard lives. Peter knows that living in a hard world can make us be short with each other. Have you ever noticed that when things are hard for you, you might not be as nice to everybody around you? Sometimes struggling at home or struggling at work can make you hard toward others that you should love in the church. Sometimes the pressures of living in a society that is against you, those pressures can make you grow cold and selfish. And God wants us to know, first, if you're going to pull off obedience to His commands, the commands He gave us from chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 7, you're going to have to work hard to have a, a tender eye a sweet, a kind, a loving heart. And you, dear Christian friend, need to pray and think and act to see to it that the words of verse 8 mark you in how you think and how you feel and how you act toward other people. Put on a godly heart. Second piece for us this morning. Respond graciously. Respond graciously. Verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So here Peter, I think, shifts the focus from the heart that is inside the church for each other. And he starts to tell us, I believe, how we should be responding to the world outside too. Though, again, to be fair, this has to apply to our relationships inside the body too. And again, we see a command that we could find in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Though I don't think Peter's copying Paul here. Paul and Peter both are inspired by God. And Paul and Peter both learn from the teachings of Jesus. Peter learned from Jesus firsthand. Paul learned from the Gospels but at the end of Matthew 5, those of you who remember us going through the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus talking about, what are you supposed to do with your enemies? Remember? Something your enemies. Hurt them, right? Squash your enemy. Is that what it says? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Romans 12, Paul says, don't try to avenge yourself when you're wrong. Here, Peter says, don't return evil for evil. Don't return reviling. That's nasty, harsh words. Don't return nasty words with more reviling, more nasty, harsh words. If somebody says something nasty to you, don't get them back. Do you see the temptation that we face right here? If somebody says something mean to you, what is your reflex? If you're like most people, your reflex is to want to tell them off. You want to hit them as hard as their words hit you. If somebody does something nasty to hurt you, you, your gut is to want to hurt them back. But God forbids you and me from making this our life practice. But what are we supposed to do instead of cursing those who curse us? Making fun of those who make fun of us? Disrespecting those who disrespect us? What do we do? Peter says, bless them instead. And you know what? 
that sounds like Jesus. Does that not sound like love your enemies and turn the other cheek all rolled into one? When people speak evil of you and to you, you and I are supposed to respond with kind words, words of blessing, words of grace. Why in the world would we do that? A little harder to interpret than you might think. In general, we're supposed to bless because we are to inherit a blessing. You and I have an inheritance as children of God, just like the nation of Israel had a land to inherit in the Old Testament. We have an inheritance, and our inheritance is an inheritance of blessing. It is supposed to, and and, and that, that blessing is supposed to lead us to bless and speak kindly even toward those who are nasty to us in the world. But the question should be raised. How does our blessing others tie to our inheritance? And one interpretation would say that blessing is required of us to receive our inheritance. Like, you've got to bless if you want your inheritance. The other interpretation is that we bless because we have an inheritance of blessing already guaranteed. I mean, after all, if you've got blessing given to you by God, the God that you have offended more than anyone on earth could ever offend you, how could you not also respond graciously toward others? So which interpret is it? Actually, it's both. It's either one presents something true. See, part of being a Christian is repentance. Now, we never earn our salvation. We never earn eternal life in any way. But that doesn't mean that obedience to the Word of God is not required for us. If you're a Christian, you said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Part of being saved is having a faith that saves your soul and leads you to turn from sin and follow the commands of God. So part of being saved is turning away from the tendency to curse others who would hurt you and to learn to speak kindly. You bless because that's part of having the inheritance. But at the same time, our blessing of others should flow out of the glorious knowledge of the gospel that we have. You and I have been saved if you're saved by God's grace. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. You and I, if we put up what we have earned before God, you know what it is? What have you earned from God? Judgment. Our sins have earned us hell. But what's God said I'm going to give you? Infinite joy and a glorious eternity in His presence. And that should motivate you to express kindness even to those who would rail against you, which, by the way, is the same word that Peter used for those who railed against Christ. God's forgiveness of sinners like us gives us patience as we deal with people who sin against us. So because of the gospel and in obedience to the gospel, You and I are to strive to respond graciously to everyone around us. Third point, guard your speech 
Guard your speech. Verse 10, for, quote, look at this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. What's Peter doing right there? What do you immediately see Peter do? He quotes scripture. Isn't that cool? Peter's been teaching us from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But now Peter turns his, his minds of the readers, he turns the readers' minds to Psalm 34, the very psalm that we heard read at the opening of this service. And by the way, this is not the first time in this book that Peter has turned us to Psalm 34. He likes Psalm 34. Let me make a, a note here. This is important for us living as modern Christians. Please recognize that Peter understood right there that he was citing authoritative scripture when he wrote verses 10 through 12. Recently, a popular pastor told the watching world that Christianity would do better if we could unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. The man went on to say, well, I mean, we should because the early church had no Bible. The early church couldn't say the Bible says. There was no scripture for them. The Bible didn't come into existence until the 4th century, he says, with great confidence. Now, that man is wrong in a variety of ways. By the way, I still feel weird because of how this ties to Sunday school. I did not plan this to be the day of picking on public pastors. But this we got to know. First of all, is any preacher right who says the early church had no Bible? No. The books even of the New Testament were inspired scripture. They were authoritative scripture the moment they were written. They didn't become scripture in the fourth century. No way. And historically, there is a mountain of evidence that the church in the early first century, and definitely in the second, in the late first century, early second century, the church knew that the writings they had received from the apostles, the writings from those close to the apostles, those writings tied to the apostles, they knew they were receiving holy scripture that was quite different from other writings of the same era. And that pastor is also wrong that the early church didn't understand that they had authoritative books already. Peter could not have written this stuff from Psalm 34 in the way that he did if he wasn't acknowledging that this was the word of God, authoritative word of God in all things. Peter knew, Peter knew that there is no way to understand God and no way to understand God's ways. There's no way to understand his plan. There's no way to understand the gospel without seeing it in the, in the unfolding word of God from Genesis on. We cannot preach a faith unhitched from the Old Testament Neither could we even begin to pretend that believers, even first century believers, did not realize their faith was based on the inspired, written down word of God. We are a Bible people, a scripture people from start to finish. Now, let's see what the scripture Peter quotes teaches us. If you want life and good days, by the way, how many of you think that sounds good? No, I don't think so. I'll have bad days and death. That's what I'm after. Life in good days, you'll do something. 
This is not, by the way, a promise that you get an easy life at present, but this is a focusing us on that inheritance of joy that we have coming in the future, and we want eternal happiness. Again, if I, if I said to you, friends, I will offer you uncompromising, eternal, never-ending happiness, is that a good deal? Are you in on that? There you go, right? Okay. What then must we do? Sign you up. You said it. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. James tells us taming our tongue is tough. But it's vital to Christian living. By the way, again, you're not saved just if you have a good mouth. But part of life and good days and joy is that that change marks salvation. We don't curse those in the world who would curse us. We don't speak evil, hurling invectives at those we don't like. We Christians, you know this is not easy, we guard our lips. How many of you could use some help there? Amen. And we never speak deceit. We never lie about those who see themselves as our enemies. Never lie about other people. We are honest. We are decent in speech no matter how they speak about us. In our culture, by the way, I believe this would extend to what you write. How many of you have some form of social media that you participate in? You should keep your keyboard from evil and your pixels from deceit as well. What's a good practice? Never present an opponent's position as anything it is not. Don't stoop to cheap tactics to make people look stupid. Be honest. Be kind. In many cases, those who are evil at heart will make their own cases look stupid. You don't have to do that. Now, I am not at all saying Neither is the word of God here saying that we do not engage in argument or debate. We most certainly do engage in argument and debate. We speak clearly, but we do not speak evilly. We don't twist others' words to make them say things that they're not saying. We treat other people in speech the way that we want others to treat us in speech even when we know they won't return the favor to us. Christians, guard your speech. Watch your mouth. Ask God to help you bless and not curse. Ask God to help you be calm and rational, clear and honest. Don't disengage from the world, but when you do engage, be civil, be rational. Try to speak like Jesus and you're going to do just fine. Fourth point, fourth point, become a peacemaker. Become a peacemaker. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Remember, we're here receiving counsel from God on living in a world that's harsh toward us. And when we receive harsh treatment, our nature is to want to fight back. 
But the Word of God reminds us that we do far better if we seek to be as peaceable as we can be. We don't compromise with the world, nor do we try to make the world like us. We don't try to make the world just, oh, you guys just think we're wonderful. But we can strive to live at peace with those who are around us. We can do that. Jesus told us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. What is a peacemaker, you ask? Well, let's play this game. What's the opposite? What would you say is the opposite of a peacemaker? A troublemaker, right? That's not hard. It's a person who just strides out into the world looking for a fight, looking to stir up anger, looking to hurt other people. We're supposed to be people who cause peace wherever we can. Remember the context. For this section, Peter's been calling Christians to submit to secular authorities. He's called us to be the best citizens, the best workers, the best wives, the best husbands we can be. And in some ways, he has called us to keep a low profile and don't make extra waves and live a simple, peaceful, quiet life the way Paul tells us to pray in 1 Timothy 2. We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love each other. And that means that we will put on peaceful speech everywhere that we can. Now, again, I'm not calling us to stop sharing the gospel. That, that doesn't make you a peacemaker. Nor am I suggesting that we stop trying to make society better look like what God tells us we're supposed to be. But there is certainly a difference in how we cause problems. If we cause problems because we cannot acquiesce to what the world wants, that's what we got to do to obey the Lord. That's fine. If we cause problems by voting for things that honor God, well, we do. If we cause problems by speaking out to try to save lives like the lives of the unborn, then, yeah, things might get tough for us and there's nothing we can do about that. But there is a difference, hopefully it's a common sense difference, between exercising our rights and offending others with our stances on the one hand, because if you exercise your rights and you live a godly life, you will offend people. That's true. But there's a difference between that and speaking in a harsh, nasty, provocative, cruel way to try to cause conflict on the other hand. Yes, do what God commands you to do in the world. That'll cause you enough discord with society. But don't make it worse by being a nasty, conflict-seeking person. Friends, this requires wisdom. In truth, even among brothers and sisters in Christ, we are going to differ on what the line is. And I'm not asking us all to agree on exactly what form of public speech is okay and exactly what form is not. Here's what I'm asking. Would you pray you personally, will you ask God if your words bring more peace or more conflict? When you bring conflict, would you ask the Lord as we see at the end of Psalm 139, test my heart. Ask the Lord to test your heart deep down to the core. Ask God to convict you if you're just stirring up trouble, if you're being selfish, if you're just liking the fight. Ask God to show you 
if you're speaking with a blessing, peacemaking, guarded tongue or not. Surrender your mouth to the Holy Spirit of God. And if you are a regular participant in argument and conflict, maybe it'd be a good idea for you to ask another faithful brother or sister in the church, and by the way, not someone who's just like you, Ask somebody different from you to help you know when you cross the line into just being mean and argumentative for argument's sake. Because we need each other so that we can live graciously to the glory of God. Make sense? Fifth point, last point. Remember the sovereignty of God. Remember the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When we wrap up here with verse 12, we wrap up with an eternal view of the gospel and the sovereign lordship of our God. Peter here finishes the quote of Psalm 34 that he's going to use with two different outcomes for humanity. And there's an obvious difference between the two. There's the children of God and there's those who oppose God. So for the children of God... We're supposed to remember that the Lord's eyes are on us. Do you get that, Christians? God sees us. How do you feel about God seeing you? In context, we're talking about suffering. God sees how other people treat us. God sees our sufferings. God sees our persecution. God sees it when we're skipped over in life because we won't do what the world around us will do. God sees it when people make fun of Christians. God sees it when people beat Christians in other countries. It's not happening here yet. God sees it when people murder Christians. God sees it when people attempt to de destroy a Christian-run business just because the business people won't celebrate immorality, God sees it. God sees us. He hears our prayers. And God will never leave us. And God will never forsake us. But the hope for the Christian is not in this life working out smooth. Our hope is the eternal inheritance that we've been promised in Jesus. Our hope, friends, is that because God is infinite in his power and infinite in his goodness, God can give you and me an eternal comfort and an eternal reward that will be far greater than any hardship the world could ever throw at us. But God's face is against those who do evil. Those who don't belong to God will eternally face the judgment of God. God is good, friends. God is just. God will not allow people to oppose Him and oppose His people with impunity. The wrath of God will fall on those who stand against Him without repenting and getting under His grace. So why would I say remember the sovereignty of God? 
Christians, remember that even if the world opposes you and even if the world tries to hurt you, God is with us. God sees our pain. God sees our struggle. And the sovereign God will judge. God will judge so we don't have to. God will avenge us so we must not avenge ourselves. We don't lash out at others in anger or try to stir up conflict with the world because we know our God can do a far better job of judging than we ever could. God will reign. He is God. He is Lord. And we trust Him in eternity to do all things rightly because our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. But if you don't know the grace of God in Jesus... Remember, God is sovereign. God is the creator, and God is the master over and above the entire universe. You cannot fight God and win. You cannot oppose God and walk away. You will face God's justice. And I would urge anybody who's opposing God, I would urge anybody who's just not believing God to stop and to turn today. Believe in the God who made you. Believe in the Son of God who came to earth to rescue God's children. Turn away from thinking you get to run your life. Turn away from standing against God. Come to Jesus in faith and ask Him for mercy. And if you come to Jesus in faith, You know what you're going to find? You're going to find out God has saved you and God has forgiven you and God has given you new life forever. But if you insist on continuing to oppose and fight against God, you will be judged. And the judgment will be perfectly just even as it is infinitely unbearable. Friends, it's hard to live as Christians in a world that doesn't want us. By the way, in so many ways, that's what First Peter's all about. And God says to us that we will do best when we learn to live graciously. Develop a godly heart in the church. Learn to care. Learn to be humble. Learn brotherly love. And when dealing with the world that's outside the church, be gracious in how you talk and how you reply. Guard your speech and seek to make peace wherever you can. But at the end of the day, trust that the sovereign God over all will rightly judge those who oppose him. And he will comfort his children with a glorious, eternal inheritance thanks to the perfect, complete work, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together and let's pray. Father, Father, we we need you. We need you to keep giving us wisdom and shaping us into what you want us to be. Because in truth, Lord, we're not good at responding graciously. We're not good at guarding our tongues. We're not good at being peacemakers. We're not good at trusting you to take care of things. And we're not always good at loving one another. But because of Jesus and because of our eternal inheritance, God, would you please grant us the ability to live as children of God. 
Grant us the ability to magnify you in how we think and how we speak and how we act. Grant us the ability to love as you loved us. Grant us the ability to look like Jesus so that we can magnify the Savior who died to give us eternal life. Father, if anyone here doesn't know you, I pray that you will bring them to know you. And for those who do know you, I pray that we will repent and grow and learn for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.